Well, it's good to have you all here today, and, and uh, thank you so much for coming to church and being with us. As you know, we, we, we can worship God on our own uh, by ourselves individually. Of course, He welcomes us to do that. But there is something special when we're here together, joining our hearts together in worship, singing, praising God. And, and uh, it's been said by many people that you can't really understand God or the Bible unless you have people around you so that you can experience Him in the ways that they experience Him. Because one human being cannot possibly experience Him in all of the different facets of the, uh, the expression that God makes in, in our world. And so uh, it's great to come to church, and we do appreciate uh, your being here. Uh, this morning we're going to continue our study in First Peter. And what we've done is printed the, uh, uh, the passage in your bulletin. It's actually right there below the... Uh, uh, the, the sermon title, and so I'm going to read the scripture. You're welcome if you have your Bible with you, that's also good. Uh, you can open your Bible to that passage, First Peter uh, chapter 3, uh, verse 8, and we will uh, begin reading, uh, uh, actually begin reading in verse 8, and it's just a few verses there, and so uh, hear, hear God's, God's word. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, Sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever loves, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. As I told you last week, the... uh, Uh, The writer and scholar G.K. Chesterton said, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. And when I say that, and I believe that what Chesterton is getting at is that very rarely do you see authentic expressions of true Christianity. What you see often in uh, the history of the church and even in modern times is a caricature of true Christianity. And uh, especially in America, something that we are, we're not going to give up on this because we are, uh, are immersed in this culture of a false American gospel that tells us we need to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. All God is all about is just pouring out blessings and riches. And if you're not walking in abundance and riches and blessings, you're, something's wrong with you. If there's any suffering in your life, it is not at God's hands that you're suffering. You're suffering at someone else's hands. Somebody else's. Your own fault. Maybe a lack of faith on your part, or maybe the devil has got an inroad into your life, and they go on and on and on. And what that does, folks, if you're honest, for one second, what that's going to do is crush you to the ground, because what you're going to see is God somehow in absentia. 
He's somehow not part of your life even when things are going wrong. You're going to have to find a reason to blame and a place to go blame. Because after all, we're Americans. We should enjoy the best of everything. Everything should be coming up roses. And so this idea of suffering is very difficult for us as Western Christians who have been privileged now for centuries. No persecution. Nobody even lists a fear. You, can, you know what? You can leave today and go to any number of churches and the doors will open wide. Nobody will blink. And everybody will live. But there are people who to even step foot in a Christian church puts their life in danger and it puts their careers in danger. It puts their future, puts their children in danger. Their education is in danger. And we can hardly get our head around it. So when Target quits saying Merry Christmas and starts saying Happy Holidays instead, American Christians go crazy and start whining and complaining. Oh my God, the world is coming to the end. Henny penny theology, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. And we blame government, we blame politicians, we blame everybody in the world. And folks, my job as your pastor is to tell you, uh, cut that out, stop it. No more whining, no more complaining. Nobody in this room has really, unless, I don't know, really suffered real persecution uh, or, or uh, disadvantage for being a Christian. If anything, you've benefited from being a Christian. But these people that Peter's talking to did not benefit. They were under duress. And I believe that many of our children in this country will, will have to undergo duress. I doubt it will happen in my lifetime, maybe not in many of your lifetimes, but believe me, Things are changing, and, and Christians are going to come under duress. Perhaps in this country, maybe not. Maybe the, the president will save our lives. Maybe the government will save us. But if they don't, what will you do? How will you prepare your heart and your life? And what if it's just ordinary criticism at work for being a Christian? Or in your marriage, what if your marriage gets rocky and a spouse says to another spouse, you know what, you don't act like a Christian very often. I mean, Marty V tells me that about once a week. She told me recently that I needed to get saved. <laughs> you know what I'm saying. I mean, it can be difficult to live out a real Christian life. And what Peter's doing, and it's, today is going to be tough, folks. You have to listen. And, and some of you are going to have to really suck it up and say, you know what? I really need to pay attention to what Peter is saying for the sake of the gospel of Jesus. Listen to what he says, okay? Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. If you really do this, folks, I'm going to be honest with you. I, it's going to be hard. It's going to cost you. To do what Peter says to do. And he doesn't suggest you do it. He gives a command. He says, you must do this. I command you to do this. In the name of Jesus Christ, I command that you do it. I'm not going to suggest anything. This is what it means to be a Christian. Now, will you do it? Will you trust the Lord? Will you step out in faith? And here's what he says. We're going to look at the redemptive response. We've already talked about it. What does Peter say a redemptive response is? And what did Jesus say a redemptive response is? It's to suffer unjustly. 
Not to suffer when you're doing things wrong and somebody comes along and smacks you and says, hey, you know, you're doing that wrong. You deserve that. You deserve to be corrected for doing that. But when you're doing things right and you're trying to live an honorable Christian life and you're being honest and you get laid low for it because of your Christianity, Peter is saying, you know what? Don't respond in kind. Show a redemptive response. Because Jesus isn't here to do it for you. You're to do it in His name. So we're going to look at the redemptive response probably for a few weeks. And I hope you'll keep coming and listening because it will help you really express true Christianity, what it really is, and not the caricature that our culture has applied to it. So let's talk about it real quick. What is uh, the redemptive response? What is a redemptive response? Secondly, how does it work? How do you actually make it work? Not just up here in your head, but putting you know, your, 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 uh, uh, your, your hands to the, to the grindstone, so to speak. And where is the redemptive response, response going to take you? Peter outlines all of it here. Uh, what it is, how does it work, where does it take us? So very quickly, what is the redemptive response? Let me give you a definition uh, from Dr. Karen Jobes and her a uh, wonderful commentary on 1 Peter. Uh, Dr. Job says this, A redemptive response is not responding in kind. It's not responding in kind to slander, insults, or evil intents. It is having, listen to this folks, it is having the inter, inner fortitude to break, to break the cycle of evil that spirals continually downward. That spirals can... Having the inner fortitude to break that cycle. And what uh, we're going to talk about is breaking that cycle. And it's going to be costly. You see, the redemptive response... Listen, folks. I'm not going to beat around the bush. The redemptive response is going to assault... It is going to make a direct and violent assault against you, against your self-centeredness, against your self-protection, against your selfishness. It is going to go, the minute you do the redemptive response, it is going to crash open the doors of your heart into the deepest recesses of who you are, where your selfishness has gained tremendous ground, had laid down deep roots, and is going to go there and make you face it. And if you face it, you're going to have to either deny it and say, you know what, I'm actually really a good person. Nobody's less selfish than me. I'm the most generous person. I'm the best. You're going to have to deny it or you're going to have to face it and become totally discouraged and say there's nothing I can do about it. It's just the way I am. There's no help and I can't help myself. Or you're going to go there and you're going to say, no, I am not going to let selfishness, self-protection and self-justification and self, 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 I'm not going to let that rule me. I'm going to do what Jesus did for me. I'm going to say me for them. Me for this person. I am going to, in my own little tiny way, I'm going to redeem this person. I'm going to save them. Not save them in the ultimate sense that Jesus saves us, but save them. I'm going to pay a price. And folks, you will pay. But... If you do it right, 
The payment will never, if you listen to me and you do what I'm telling you, and you should because I'm the boss of you. No, that's what my son Daniel used to say. I'm not, you're not the boss of me. I said, honey, you have no idea how much the boss of you I am. If you listen, folks, you will never have to pay out of your own accounts. You never have to go to your own bank account. In fact, if you do, you're going to lose. You'll just become bitter and angry. But if you go to Christ's bank account, here's what Jesus said. Forgive, what? How does it go? Forgive even as you've been forgiven. Love even as you've been loved. Where's he saying for you to go when you forgive? To your bank account? No. He says forgive even as you've been forgiven. Go to God's bank account. Go to that in the infinite amount of forgiveness. Go to that immeasurable amount of forgiveness and make your withdrawal from there. Let Jesus' payment come, come to, your, to your account and then you make it from there. Because somebody is going to pay. And He's not asking you to pay on your own. Otherwise, that's why Christians get bitter and angry when they, oh, they tell me I've got to forgive, but you don't know how bad they hurt me. Yes, I do. I've been hurt. And I could never forgive. Never. Not even the least slightest thing could I ever forgive without anger and bitterness and feeling angry about it if I didn't have the discipline and the inner fortitude to fight myself, my own selfishness, and go to that bank account and get the money from there. Get the forgiveness, forgive as I've been forgiven. Love as I've been loved. I mean, do you want me to love you the way, the way I love? Or would you like me to love you the way Jesus loves you? Don't answer that. But the, the answer is obvious, folks. We want His love. We want His love channeling through us to others. Family, spouse, co-workers, world, politicians, the whole thing. We want His love because it's inexhaustible and it's beautiful and it's glorious and it enriches you as it flows through the conduit of your own life. It, it, it enriches you, it fills you up, it makes you in, invulnerable to the pain and the hurt of this world. And Peter's telling you, you've got to have that. They're going to stomp you down if you don't have that. And the early church did it. They would come to the early, the early Christians and they would say, we're going to cut off your head. And the early Christians would fall down on their knees and stretch their neck out as far as they could. They would stretch, which is where we get the word humility. Stretch their neck out all the way and they would say, Lord Jesus, forgive them. Could we do that in America? Oh no, we'd be pulling our pocket constitution out saying, I have rights. To life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You don't dare do this to me. Well, what about the Bible? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't quote the Bible to me. I have rights. I mean, come on, folks. I love our con the Constitution. Great. That's all great. In civil society, we need those things. And ours is the best there is. Not saying anything about that. But there is a time and place when you have got to be willing to make a redemptive response. You're called to do it. Peter said you're called to do it. That's what it is. How does it work? How does it work? I'm going to give you two ways how it works. First, working it in, and then secondly, working it out. Working it in, working out. This is verses 8 through 11, and what he's going to do here, he's going to explain what it means, or verse 8, 
Uh, yeah, mostly in verse 8. W- what it means to work it in to your life. He says, have unity. Listen carefully. There's five things he's going to give us. Unity of mind. He said, you need to have a unity of mind. What this means is a like-mindedness. And it is not that we are all to be thinking exactly alike. I promise you, in this room of uh, maybe 100 people, we don't all think of the same thing probably about anything. We think we do, but we really don't. We are to have a common heritage of faith and our ethical traditions. In other words, what the Westminster Confession says is that we are to go to Scripture to inform our faith and our practice. Faith and practice. So what it's saying is that as a Christian believer, you are to go to the Scriptures for what you believe, doctrine, and how you act. Ethics. All right? And what Peter is saying, you don't have to agree about everything. You know, I like every kind of ice cream pretty much. Marty V likes vanilla and nothing else. And it has been no end of trouble in our marriage. <laughs> now, I mean, we, we don't have to agree on ice cream. For goodness sakes, we don't have to agree on everything in the church either. But when it comes to doctrinal stability and ethical practice, it's very clear. The Bible tells us what to believe, and it also tells us how to act. And this is part of how you're to act, having a like mind around that thing, so that we all can share the same ethical approach and the same doctrinal approach to things. Okay? In the big picture. Not every church has to be the same. That's not what he's saying. But our heritage, our roots are the same. Secondly, sympathy. He uses the word, in fact, in Greek, it's the same as English sympathy. It means understanding. In this particular context, he means that you are deferential. Listen, nobody needs to hear this more than folks that, that are, are real proud of their theology like we are as Reformed people. We, we love, I mean, after all, it's Jesus Christ, John Calvin. You see any similarities there? The JC, you know, I mean, Jesus Christ, never mind. All right. We are to be able to deferentially see another's point of view. That's what sympathy is here. What Peter's saying is, you know, you should be able to, to argue over politics and do it civilly. And, and even try to, to look at things a, a different point of view. Theologically, you should be able to sit down and you should be able to talk about some of, the, some of the most strident differences that we have in theology with somebody and be able to do it civilly and agree to disagree and not want to draw blades and cut each other's throat. You know what I'm saying? Now, when it comes to essential doctrines, that's different. If you'd come to the class yesterday, would have talked, you, you'd have gotten all that and, and you'd be better for it. But... What he's saying is that we, are to be, we should be able to always step into another's shoes. We should be deferential. In other words, our selfishness, our pride, and our arrogance should move aside for humility's sake and move into and be able to look at what it's like to be that person. You can't do it as them because you don't have the same life experience. But you can at least try to look at it through their point of view. Sympathy. Thirdly, brotherly love. This is the word Philadelphos. You've heard it, I don't know how many times. Philadelphia, brotherly love. And what brotherly love meant in the, in the New Testament and the Old Testament, brotherly love was not emotional attachment. 
In the modern West, we think love is an emotion. But in the Bible, love is an emotion that comes second to something else. Are you with me? Yes? Love is always second. The the emotion is secondary to something else. And brotherly love is acting rightly towards another person, even an adversary, regardless of the emotions involved. That's how these people in in the Greek world and in the Hebrew and the ancient world understood love. That you were to act rightly towards that person. If you were going to love them, you act rightly towards them even if you didn't like them. You see, we often say, well, you know, I know I have to love this person, but I really don't like them. Right? Well, this is the answer to that conundrum. It's not necessarily telling you that you have to like them, but you do have to do what is right. Yes? Say amen or something. I don't know. I want to make sure you're tracking with me. <laughs> All right, listen. You've got to do what's right. That's how you show love to somebody. Think of what this would do to our marriages, folks. Imagine what it would do in our homes with our children if we just did what was right by the other person. That's brotherly love. I could say a lot more about it. We don't have time. A tender heart. This is a composite word. It's very interesting. It actually means compassion, pity, uh, kindness, softness, spaciousness. In other words, to be tender-hearted is just to be soft and not hard. To be kind, not rough. You know, how you, how you speak, how you act is soft and tender. It's hard for us men sometimes because at work, you know, when I owned my business, I couldn't be soft and tender with my employees. I had to tell them, you know what, you've got to do this and this and this. And if they said no, I would fire them. So well, isn't that kind of mean? No, it's business. But I couldn't come home and tell my wife that, you know, this and this and this, and I'm going to fire you. I mean, I... St- I still have some scars from that. Some bruises. You don't do that with our wives and our husbands, our children, you know. Treat them like employees. We don't do that in church. We don't treat each other like employees in church. And it can make church a little weird and hard to deal, but we've got to be compassionate. Have pity. Show some softness, some kindness. Tell me something. Hasn't Jesus been kind to you? Even when you mess up and you really go south, you mean you really go sideways, and you come back to him and you're kind of cringing, going, I wonder if he'll love me. I wonder if has he ever spoken harshly to you? And say, you get back out there and you get this is all this. I want to get this all straightened out. Don't you even show your face around here till you straighten yourself out. Anybody ever heard that? If you have, we need to talk. I need to talk to you. No, every time I've ever gone to Jesus, and listen, I've done things that would curl your hair, folks, and every time I've gone back to him and said, God, I'm so, I don't know, I must have been out of my mind. I have never yet in my experience felt anything but love and embrace and welcome. And it cost him to do that. Don't think it didn't cost him to do that. You don't know what the cross is about. It costs him to love you. It costs him to love me. Tender heart. Finally, humble mind. This is not humility, by the way. It's 
having a humble mind. It's another compounded word. And what it means is being low-minded. In other words, a conscious effort, again, to be deferential, to be self-effacing, to be courteous, polite, to be defenseless. In other words, somebody is attacking you and the answer that you give them is what? A soft answer because it turns away wrath. These folks are the things that they are the fabric of the redemptive response. They're they're the Kevlar for for those of our our military family here. You understand the armor. It's putting all these threads together. Weaving them into a fabric, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, humble, low-mindedness, self-deferential, you know, me for you. I will give way. I will move aside. Somebody's walking this way and you say, I will give them the sidewalk. I will give them the street. I will give them the lane. I will give them the light. I will give them this argument. I will give them uh, this privilege even when they don't deserve it. I will be for them. Do you get that? It's the redemptive response. Why? Why do we work this into our lives? I'm going to give you three reasons very quickly why, why this working it in is so important. These five things, these five virtues, by the way, they call them virtues or graces, is what the Bible calls them. Virtues or graces. First, it builds cohesion within the Christian community. You see, if we are all building, working in these five things into our life. Imagine how strong the body of people here at Christ the King. Little, small, small group. We don't have thousands of people, but a small group. We would be so strong, folks. People would wait and say, wow, those are different people. Do you, don't you want to be that? I want to be that. I don't want to be a caricature of Jesus. I want to trace my life on His. To be real, like Him. All right. It builds strength and resilience. It gives us, folks, a common DNA that we all share together. It builds community. If you try to do this alone, you are going to be slaughtered. You must do it in community. You must get people around you who are like-minded, who love you, who will go in for you, who will sacrifice for you, and then build a forceful wall. Again, the military... Uh, uh, picture is always in view with these men because they lived in a very militaristic society. Paul and Peter and the other apostles were living in an occupied world where everywhere they looked were armed men, foreigners, occupying their land. So they knew in order to survive, they needed one another. If they got separated from the herd, they would get killed. If the, if the wolves were able to 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 cut one or cull one out of the flock, that one was gone. That one was dead. You need church. You need the people of God around you. You need good friends within church. Small little pockets of community. People that you trust. That you can live your life with. Finally, evangelism. He's going to talk about evangelism in the next few verses. He's going to talk about giving a gentle answer to those that ask you. I, Hey, we see you're different. You're responding. You're not responding in kind. I just slugged you in the face and you're not responding the same way. What's different about you? And you'll be able to tell them, you know, I believe in a God 
who got beaten to death for me. I can take that little slight. I can take that little slap. I can take it. Would you like to know him? He's something. I'm nothing. Now, people, I mean, they'll perk up and listen to you. Believe me. That's different. Evangelism. Love one another, Jesus said, as I've loved you. By this will all men know that you're my my disciples, that you love one another. You see, the redemptive response. What about working it out? Let me do this quickly. Working it out, he goes in two directions, starting in verse 9 and going through uh, uh, verse 11. He says, here's how you work it out. By positive effort, you're actually going to do something positive, and then on the other side, you're going to avoid some things that are negative. Positive, negative. And if you've been listening and reading through Peter, perhaps on, on other times, I hope some of you have read through it. just take you 10 minutes to read through the whole book. If you've read Peter, you see he uses this a lot. That's part of his style. Do this, don't do this. Do this, don't do this. He goes back and forth, back and forth. And here, he really bears down on it. And he says this in verse 9, beginning of verse 9. Do not, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Don't do it. Don't repay in kind, reviling for reviling. Then he goes in the very same verse, latter part of the verse, he goes to the positive. He says, on the contrary, bless. For this you were called. Now there's a very interesting clause in Greek, and I can't get into it, but, but people have wondered, what is he saying we were called to? Called to obtain a blessing? Or called to suffer unjustly? And if you carefully read the Greek, what he's saying is, this is what you've been called to. Unjust suffering. We like the other half. We would rather it be the other half. You've been called to have a blessing. Everything's a blessing. But what he's saying, folks, you've been called to unjust suffering, which will produce blessing. But no unjust suffering? Let me be very frank with you. If you're not willing to suffer unjustly, no blessing. You say, my God, I'm in a Christian church and you're telling me I will not be blessed? Let Let me be very clear. No unjust suffering, no redemptive response, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to be hard. I'm going to defend myself. I'm going, to, I'm going to go for my own rights. Pastor Chuck says, no blessing for you. No blessing. How can I, how can I possibly say that? Well, if you're smart, you'll look down at verse 12. Go ahead, look at it. I want you to see it because it wasn't me that said that, by the way. It was Paul or Peter. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, His ears open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He said, there is no blessing for you. None. If you do not engage in a redemptive response in your life with people around you, if you don't trace your life over your Savior, blessings are out. Good luck to you. There's the good news for today. 
So how do you do it? Here's how you work it out. Let me give it to you real quickly, and uh, hopefully you'll get this. Madi V and I heard this years ago in, in Orlando, and, and when I did, I sat there and I thought, my God, what, what, what kind of a crazy, nutty Christian have I been for most of my life? But I'll tell you the difference, folks. I, I broke. When I heard these things, I broke inside, and I don't always practice them right. I make I make mistakes every single day, I'll tell you that. But I am committed to this with every fiber of my being. And every time it raises its ugly head, I go at it. I don't blame my wife. I don't blame any of you. And some of you, I, you could be blamed. No, I, I, I'm kidding. I, I don't blame anybody, folks. I mean, I, I go at it. I want to go at this stuff. This stuff does nothing but harm to others and to me. If you don't do it for any other reason, do it for selfish reasons because if you don't, it will eat away at your soul. It becomes a cancer in your soul and it eats you alive. You become bitter and angry. Find a Christian who is bitter and angry and upset about everything and critical about everything and always got a scowl on their face and never a smile on their face. Find that Christian. Dig around a little bit. You don't even have to dig very deep. Dig around a little bit and what you find underneath is all of this corruption. They will not forgive. They will not give way. They stand and demand. I have been hurt. I have been abused. I have been slighted. Nobody gives me recognition. They will go on and on and on and on and on. Or they will just bury it and be angry. Know anybody like that? I do. He's standing up here. I'll admit it. I hate it about myself. But before you and before God, I, I promise I'm fighting it. And I want you to fight it too. Will you fight it with me? Alright, let's fight together. First, what Peter's saying is you must be a lightning rod. You know what a lightning rod is? The rod you put outside your house, out here in the southwest. We don't have them too much, but they even put them on airplanes because if lightning hits a... a, a uh, Colonel Tom could probably tell us about the lightning. They have lightning things on your helicopters, don't they, to collect if you get hit by lightning? Uh, you know, it, it, lightning rods collect the charge which otherwise would blow you to bits or burn you alive or burn your house down. You put the lightning rod and it takes the lightning, the charge, the violence from that charge, that overwhelming amount of energy, and it, it brings it down a very narrow focus, this, this lightning rod, and it takes it down into the ground or somewhere else, and it discharges it so no harm is done. He's saying, be a lightning rod. Take the charge. Disarm it. Take it down into the ground and let it go down there. Don't spread gossip. Don't talk about When a slight comes your way, if somebody hurts you, somebody talks bad about you, somebody actually sins against you, take the sin, let it go down into the ground, bury it down in there, and, and absorb it so that it goes no further, so that it doesn't harm. One word of gossip, one word of dissing somebody, knocking them down, or bringing a little cloud of, well, you know Chuck, he's, you know that Chuck, he always says, you know, just throwing a little cloud of suspicion over them can wreck their reputation. Yes? Can wreck it. Be quiet. Zip. Zip it. I know most of you didn't see that movie, but you should have. Zip it. All right, don't say anything. Let it go down in the ground. Absorb it. Take it to Jesus. Let Jesus take it in with you. 
Be a lightning rod. Then he tells us, overlearn the response. In other words, Peter's saying, this must become the fabric of your lives. It's not going to be easy, Christian. It's going to be hard. Make it the fabric of your life. Because then you will see joy. You will not believe the power that will come rushing into your life to really be joyful and, and be happy with your Christianity. To actually be satisfied with God instead of being angry and bitter all the time. Now, if Christianity is going to make you bitter, go do something else. My goodness, who wants that? I don't. Overlearn the response. You know, it's like... Uh, if, if any of you remember learning driving to a car, you, you know, driving the car, you had to learn to put the brakes on without thinking about it. You know, my dad and I, Marty V, we all learned to fly. We had airplanes at one, one time back when we had money. We had airplanes, little private planes. We had to learn to fly the airplane. A lot of that stuff, to get a pilot's license, you have to overlearn. You have to know when to push uh, you know, the pedals and when to move the, the wheel and how to drive the thing. You've got to know how to... How to dr- Fly, not drive. You don't drive planes. You fly them. You have to, they have to be overlearned response. You don't even think about it. You're just doing it because you don't have time to think. And we know what that is, folks. It's an overlearned response. It becomes instinctive. becomes part of who you are. And Peter is saying you've got to learn it. You've got to build it down into your life. Then you have to work it in and then work it out. This is what we call robust faith. Listen. Robust faith and radical obedience. Robust faith and radical. What, what Peter's calling us all to is not just this superficial, churchy kind of faith. Oh, yeah, I love Jesus. Me and Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Blah, 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 blah. Until something happens. Then until the beds are off. I'm going to be just like everybody else. No, he's talking about a robust faith, something that's alive. And a radical faith. I'm going to hold this until if it kills me. I will never let it go. Bob Ingram told us in Florida, Marty V wrote this quote down, I'm glad she did. Bob Ingram told us, my, one of my pastors in Florida said, who can, listen to this, beautiful, who can foretell? Who can foretell where simple obedience will lead? The significance of our lives is often measured in its cumulative effect rather than the heroics of a single action. In other words, what, what Bob is saying is, you know, you've got to look at your whole life. You may never have a single heroic act in your life, but think of the cumulative effect of all the little things you do every day. Loving a child, forgiving a child, loving a spouse, forgiving a spouse, sharing the love of God with people at your work where they may never know anything about God other than your embrace. Embracing people of other cultures, other colors, other socioeconomic levels. Going, going out there and actually sacrificing for someone. Why are we even having to tell each other this? Bob says, rather than the heroics of a single action, maybe it's the cumulative effect of your life. The little deeds. Listen, the ordinary, I love this, the ordinary becomes through God's sovereign management, Extraordinary. Your everyday life, your everyday kindness, your everyday gentleness, your everyday tenderness. Through God's sovereign management becomes extraordinary. In the day-to-day discipline of ordinary obedience, day-to-day ordinary obedience, God is pleased, listen, over the course of a lifetime to produce extraordinary results. We often get discouraged and think, well, I'll never accomplish. I'll never be anything. I'll never be what God. How do you know 
just the little day-to-day kindnesses, the little day-to-day things that you do faithfully, robustly, robust faith, radical obedience, the little small things, who knows what they'll amount to if you'll just obey, if you'll just listen, if you just trust Him. Every Sunday I ask you after the sermon, will you trust? Just trust Him. No, it's not going to be perfect. Jesus wrote the perfect letters. You're going to trace your life over them. They're not going to be perfect, but they can be legible. People will be able to read it. If you'll love them and care about them, everyone around us, not just the people we like, but especially the ones we don't like. I know that's hard. I know it's hard. How hard was it for him to love us? How hard? Think. Where did he find you? Where were you when he took you into his arms? I know where I was. And I'll never forget it. Never. Where will it take us? I already read it to you. Blessings. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. That righteous in this context doesn't mean justification, forensic righteousness for all of you theologians. What it means is those that do the right thing, those that do what I've just been saying here, do the right thing, love the right way, sacrifice yourself for others. Will you do it? He's saying you will be blessed. God will be open. He'll hear your prayers. Don't do it. You will be opposed by God. Now let me just say this, and I, I, you, you need to know this. I, it's hard for me to say, so I'm going to tell you how Tim Keller said it. If you don't have a God that has opposed you and opposes you regularly, if your God never says no to you, if your God is only saying what you think He's saying, and you say, oh, God spoke to me and He says this, and He says this, and God's always talking to me, and He's saying this and that and the other thing, is any of that conversation that you're having with God, is He opposing you and saying, no, you're misbehaving, you're acting unkind, you're not being Christian about this? If your God is never saying those things to you, then Tim Keller says you don't have the right God. You don't even have a real God. You just have you. You're just listening to your own self-affirmations and then to act spiritual, you come out and tell everybody, oh, God told me this and God told me, you know what, I don't believe you. Because if He was really speaking to you, He would be opposing you much of the time. Unless you're a saint. Unless you're so perfect. Who wants, anybody here want to own that today? Unless you're just some super uber Christian. I don't believe that for a minute. Because I know I'm not, and I'm sure that I'm better than most. <laughs> I hope you, you know, I hope you all, no, I'm kidding with that. Just trying to lighten the mood a little bit. This is hard stuff. If you're a Christian, you never experienced God opposing you, then Keller says you probably never met the real God. It's probably just you up there talking and you're applying, you're saying, oh, God's told me how great, I'm going to get all these blessings and He told me this and He told me that. And just, 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 just you. Don't fool yourself. Just you talking to yourself. If you want to hear God, He's going to say, what did you just do? What was that I just saw? Now you're hearing the voice of God. I want you to go and tell that person that you have something to say to them and you apologize. Now, now you're hearing God's voice, all right? Not that other stuff. Bunch of hooey. 
So how do you do it? Look to Jesus. Listen, on the cross, folks, I tell you this every week, on the cross, who became the greatest lightning rod this world has ever seen? Who took the full force, the energy, the cosmic horror and energy of this entire universe, all the wrath of God, every single kilowatt of the wrath of God? Who took that charge, that violent wrath that we deserved? Who took it into his own body? And is it burned into his soul? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he took it into himself. And it drove down into the bottom of the ground in that cross. And it was buried in a grave. He took that and buried it in the ground. He buried it in a grave. And it cost him. And he's saying now, forevermore, the rest of your lives, I'm for you. I will be with you. I will never leave you. Forgive as you've been forgiven. Love as you've been forgiven. As you've been loved. Ground the evil around you the way I did. Redeem this world. I go to prepare a place for you. But I'm leaving here. You go. You be my voice. You be my disciples. You make disciples of the world. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You bring the lost sheep to me the way I've brought you. Folks, if we will do that, Christ the King can be an amazing church. I pray we can do it. I'm begging you, this new year, let's do it. Let's be kind. Let's show, actually live our faith. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Let's pray. Father, we know we have no illusions that this is going to be easy. And I, I'd much rather be trying to preach something else. But I know that this is the way. Because it's your way. From the very beginning, you have paid for us. In the Garden of Eden, you paid for us. In the bush with Abraham, you paid. You paid for Isaac. With David, when he committed adultery, you paid for David. And with Peter, this man who penned these words, denied his Lord, and you paid for him too. And I pray that you'll make this real to us. Let us take it into our hearts. Let us know that we paid for us as well. And that we can follow you with the same zeal and fervor that Peter did. I pray you'll do that for us. Amen.